0: everyone. Thank you for listening to Certified Forgotten, your favorite podcast about uh, seldom reviewed, let's say seldom reviewed Rotten Tomatoes horror films. I am one half of your hosts again, Matthew Monagle, and I am joined by my partner in crime, by my by my namesake, Matt Donato. I was named after you, Matt.
1: Is that how that goes? You were named after me? I, I think, was, wouldn't I be named after you
0: because I am the younger one here? No, my parents were really ahead of their time, I think.
1: Oh, time travel. Got it. Okay. Well, hey. Exactly. Happy to be here, other Matt.
0: So today we've got a pretty damn good episode for you. Uh, we've got a movie that, well, well, we'll get to that part. But first and foremost, Matt, I would love for you to introduce our guest because I'm so excited about who you have on the show.
1: Yes, I brought with us for this episode about a werewolf movie, uh, Megan Navarro from Bloody Disgusting. You have read her stuff almost daily at this point. I like. Do you ever take a break writing articles, Megan?
2: Um, Not much, no.
1: And that's why we love you. You're one of us. This is perfect. And yes, I thought a werewolf movie would be fitting of your styles because I've seen you tweeting about werewolves somewhat. And I hope that I hit the nail on the head.
2: Well, we'll get into that. But as far as werewolves go, yes, yes. Monsters and werewolves are my jam.
0: That's great. Matt, you did technically pick a movie that has werewolves. So in as much as that, you got that right.
1: That's all I could get right. Let's be honest.
0: So... uh as a reminder, if this is your first time listening to Certified Forgotten, this is a show that explores uh, kind of the, the films that maybe didn't quite have the landing that the filmmakers were hoping on their initial release. We're talking about movies that have five or fewer Rotten Tomatoes reviews, but ones that we're either passionate about or curious about, which pretty much covers the gamut. Um, and the element of that kind of the through line in Certified Forgotten is this idea of discovery and these these films that we sort of find, um, stumble across kind of on the dredges on VOD or at, uh, horror film festivals or smaller regional festivals. And so with that in mind, um, Megan, before we talk about the film, I kind of wanted to ask you about your own discoveries, because Matt and I were talking before the show and kind of the idea that that we feel like somebody shows you a horror film, you're, one of your first horror films you watch, um, you know, that's how you get introduced to the horror genre. But it isn't until you find something that you really become a horror fan, something that you're like, this is mine. I discovered it. I put my stake on it. What was that movie for you?
2: Okay, this one is hard because I don't really remember because when I was like four, I my parents had like a tape that they had recorded off of cable that had Wizard of Oz and Hercules in New York and Ghostbusters. And I became obsessed with Ghostbusters. And so it kind of started this obsession lifelong with monsters. And my dad was always this huge movie fan. And he'd go to the video store every week to browse the new release walls. And I'd go with him and I would just hang out in like the horror section. And I would choose movies by cover and like the pictures based on, you know, whatever monster they might have had. So I was watching horror movies at probably way too young of an age. Um, So a lot of them I don't really remember because... My parents apparently did not have any kind of uh, filter. So they would just kind of let me rent stuff. And um, yeah, just happily let me watch Monsters. So there's so many movies that I'm sure that I watched that I don't remember that I kind of technically discovered. But I mean, I remember the ones that traumatized me, which were things like anything to do with the dolls, Poltergeist, Clown Dolls, Chucky. So I guess that... Vane, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any one specific movie, but um, I guess if there's one that started it all, it would be Ghostbusters.
1: So you were braver than I was because I could admit that for way too long, I would avoid the horror idol aisles uh, in uh blockbuster and whatnot because I, I was terrified of horror movies as a child and growing up, so I would avoid the same movies that you flock to, <laughs> essentially, and the doll stuff is. Still to this day, that's the most creepy shit that I could walk into.
2: Yeah, I don't I mean, the doll stuff creeped me out. And I think that's why I remember it most of all. But I just anything, anything that I could possibly morph into a monster movie when I was a kid, I would like. So horror movies obviously were a given because that's where you would find monsters. But Red Sonia, there was like some kind of weird mechanical snake. That's a monster. Some of the robots in the Robocop sequels, I would classify that as a monster in, like, six-year-old brains. So, yeah, I, like, the scariest stuff I would love, and yet I would watch from behind the couch and still be, like, enamored by it.
1: As a good aspiring horror watcher would do. Yeah, I, I never had as a kid either. That's the funny part to me, like, hearing people who had stories about, oh, I started watching horror way too young at age. Growing up for me, I mean, my parents were so strict, and when they were that house that was... If you're not 13, you don't get to watch PG-13 movies. If you're not of age, you can't watch our movies. So my entirety of growing up was avoiding horror because it was too scary or gory, not being able to see anything ever. And it's just so interesting for me to hear the opposite side of that. And I'm like, I wonder what would have happened if I had that upbringing where they just let me watch whatever I wanted to.
2: Yeah, but you found your way to horror anyway. And that's like part of why you know, horror fans love horror is that there is no single entry point. It's like so diverse across the board.
1: No. And that's what we want to highlight with these questions too. So it's really, you know, this is the interesting stuff for us. We'll get to the movie eventually, but I'm just so interested in picking people's brains about how they even got into horror
2: <laughs> with monsters and ghostbusters.
0: I like that. Mr. Monagle. I think it's time for question two. Question two, if you dare, uh, is actually about how you discover stuff now, because Matt and I have talked in the past about how this podcast came to be, because we realized we were both at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival at the same time, literally at the same show years before we knew who each other were. So where do you go? I mean, you've got basically your finger on the pulse as much as anybody um, in terms of what's coming out that's prestigious, what's coming out that's cheap, what like every avenue of horror distribution, it's like straight into your wrist. So... Like, where do you go if you're like, I really want to find something. I I, I need a recommendation. I'm going here. Are
2: you, are you talking about just like across the board? Um, because obviously film festivals is is a huge for what's on the horizon. Um, and then just a variety of websites that probably you guys browse too. I mean, obviously the one I write for bloody disgusting, but um, upcoming horror movies is pretty good. I mean, their sole existence is keeping track of what's on the horizon. Um just programmers local programmers are really good for finding niche stuff too and also the like the niche boutiques like vinegar syndrome and severn films and all of those that like to go back and find the lost gems from decades ago that we might have missed
0: let me ask about that cuz you mentioned programmers um you know for every what four movies five movies a programmer actually puts in a film festival, you know, there's probably dozens, if not hundreds that they haven't seen or that they saw and that uh, decided didn't make the cut. So how often do you get that? How often does come when someone can't say, like, we're not going to play this at our festival, but you really need to check it out if you get a chance?
2: Um, well, I'm lucky in that, you know, I've got a programmer, like a local Alamo Draft house um programmer that I'm friends with. And so I get to talk to him on a regular basis and see what you know he couldn't get rights to but he really loves this movie so probably more often than your average person i get recommendations from the programmer
1: yeah i mean for me too i think uh distribution people you know getting to know different acquisitions heads and people who are going out there and finding the movies and the stuff that they can't grab i kind of do agree with you where i'm still finding new movies even if they aren't going to that distribution company because my mm-hmm. friends are like, "Oh man, we missed out on this one, and we really wanted to." And you know, you'll be hearing about it like down the road, but it, you need to watch it right now. So, like that has been like a godsend for me too. In addition to the fest stuff,
0: along those lines, then um, what's something that you have seen really recently that you feel like is a good discovery?
2: The Seventh Curse. Oh, Ooh. say more. Um, It is on Prime, actually. I found it on Prime. So (laughs) Prime is also a very good, just browsing the random streaming services. Um, It's like an 80s Hong Kong action horror movie that kind of reminds me a little bit of Big Trouble Little China. Um, And it has like babyface Chow Yun-Fat in it. And it's based on a popular novel series, like the Wisely series, that's kind of Indiana Jones-esque. So I highly, highly recommend it. It's a little bit of everything, like action, some tribes duking it out, an evil sorcerer who likes to smoosh children into bloody juice pulp to sacrifice to his worm god. It's got everything, monsters, martial arts, action, insanity. And that was a blind watch.
1: Did you just say worm god? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm not even going to, I don't even want to know. I was just very (laughs) curious.
2: Yes, watch it. Demon Wind equivalent, like, insanity.
1: Whoa, if you're going to be throwing around the Demon Wind comparisons out here, that is next on my list. That's not even a choice now. My Friday (laughs) night has been decided. Do it.
0: And normally this is where I would say, oh, you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Demon Wind, but odds are, if you listen to this podcast, you've already uh, studied at the altar of Matt Donato and Demon Wind.
1: And if you haven't, then stop listening to this podcast right now and go watch it. I mean, or I'll just yell at you on Twitter or some shit.
0: Uh, So I don't want to derail this, but did I mention that I started to watch Demon Wind? That I was like, hmm, I'm not sure this is for me.
1: Oh, podcast's over. Cool. (laughs) Fucking we're done. This is it. we got 10 minutes into the first episode, and I'm now done with the podcast. Congratulations.
0: This is disappointing for all of us.
1: Not really for me, because this is just more work for me.
0: Well... (sighs) You know, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to end the podcast now, um, we should probably at least do the filmmakers of Howlers, AKA High Moon, uh, you know, a favor and talk about their film for a little bit. So we've all had a chance to see this. This was a, um, this is a zero reviews. It's, it's a new release. So one of, I think probably the, the more rare um, new release, contemporary releases within the last month or so that we'll talk about on the show, but uh, currently sitting at zero reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, way to go which is doesn't mean that it isn't reviewed. It just means that tomato meter reviewed critics are not allowed to talk about it. Uh, but it is kind of a, a, a mixture of, I'd say a Western a martial arts, a horror film where a, a sort of like a, a, a gunslinging Van Helsing who has staked his claim to chasing werewolves throughout the old West and, you know, eradicating their kind from the face of the planet Um, he kills what he believes to be the last werewolf. And in the 1800s, finally gives himself up and lets himself die. And that's where the film opens. But there's a magical, mystical storm, which not only reawakens him in modern time, but also reawakens the werewolves that he thought he had killed, including the big bad, who is going to immediately bring a reign of werewolves upon earth, like you do in small town, Texas. And the rest of the film is sort of a combination of this guy in a fish out of water fish out of time story with a, a group of local Texans who are struggling to believe the werewolves could be among us and rallying to destroy them before they take over the town. Um, it's uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's something I think I'm going to stop talking about the plot and let the two of you dive in a bit.
1: Yeah. Let me just say that the first like opening seed really kind of hooks you in because it starts in like 1800s wild west. And in the first fight scene alone, You get werewolf bandits, you get a samurai, you get a severed head, somebody gets their hand, like a werewolf gets his hand chopped off, and I'm like, oh man, I am so into this right now. This is going to be the wildest freaking movie we've seen in how long? And then it just becomes like a soap opera, like a Dallas spinoff or some shit.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I was waiting for you to take that, Megan. (laughs)
2: Yeah, uh, I I agree with you on the opening. Like my the, the first notes that I pretty much jotted down is there's a fucking ninja um, that I did not expect. And then, yeah, they kind of forget about the werewolves in present day. Um, they you know, they have this guy and he's called the Slayer um, and he's got like a silver stake. So I was not sure if we were going to have like vampire werewolves. But it didn't matter because once he came back in present day, we just decided to follow the sheriff and his love life and his problems with the mayor. Yeah, it and go- it, yeah.
1: I was gonna say it goes kind of Terminator where we're fo- focusing on the Slayer, whose name is Colt. And he is played by who is it? Uh, Chad Michael Collins. Do we know this guy yes. from anything? He looks so familiar.
2: I don't, but I looked him up, and he's going to be in the upcoming Creep Show TV show.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, so we got our first taste yeah. of the Creep Show with Howlers or High Moon.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I think there are about five or six or thirty uh, sniper direct-to-video movies that he's been the star of. Ah, so okay. Theoretically, he has some action chops. And I mean, they
1: show. I was going to say theoretically, and they do show in the small bursts that we get, and. I feel like this is setting the stage for the rest of the podcast pretty well because Howler seems like one of those movies we're going to encounter a lot where it promises a Wild West werewolf movie and it delivers that in small bursts. And the rest of it is this weird melodrama like you alluded to. We focus away from the time-traveling fish-out-of-water crossbow-wielding slayer and we just start focusing on this random Sheriff who has love life problems that come out of nowhere and apparently play this huge emotional arc and Sean Patrick Flannery playing mayor Bob Barlow, who is just the most hilarious country Western mayor. I've, like he sold the shit out of that in the way that he probably was drunk for most of the shooting.
2: Okay. I agree with that last part. Cause I'm like, I literally also in my notes wondered what kind of direction do you think the director was giving him on his performance? Like, I was really curious about, you know, when especially in the, the climax of his scenes or whatever. What, what kind of notes do you think he was given in that performance?
1: I don't think he was given notes. I think he was given whiskey because his character is <laughs> always drinking. And I swear to God, they just gave him a gl- like a bottle of whiskey and said, i just keep drinking see what happens. Because that is the direction that it looks like.
2: Didn't even look like whiskey though. I'm like, is he drinking Chardonnay?
1: <laughs> or like apple juice, honestly. And he was drinking the whiskey in like a pint glass. Like he was drinking it in like a in like a beer glass. I'm like, none of this. This isn't even continuity. Like this doesn't even make sense. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but yes, I, I will say, as I was watching it, as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, there were a couple of times where I was like, does Sean Patrick Flannery deserve a Steven Dorff True Detective season three type of redemption story? And I'm honestly, I'm honestly not 100% sure one way or the other. Like, he's, as you said, he's doing his own thing. He's in a whole different movie. Um, He probably showed up on set and his manager said, you don't give Sean Patrick Flannery notes. And they were like, okay, great, whatever. We'll just, whatever we get, we'll we'll get. Um, But you're right. He's not bad. And we're talking disproportionately about him because he's really not in the movie all that much. But (laughs) I
1: was just going to say that. By
0: far. By far the most interesting part of the film.
1: Absolutely. Whenever he's on screen, I was enthralled because I did not know what he was gonna do next. There's one point where the sheriff walks in, and to give the people a little backstory, the sheriff and this mayor character used to be partners. Am I allowed to spoil like their relationship? Like, can I do that? Or what are we doing on this podcast? How are we doing this?
0: I would say that if you're a high moon/slash howlers purist, um, you saw this on opening night and uh Yeah, I'm not really worried about you.
1: Right. So basically, one of the first meetings that we get between the sheriff and Sean Patrick Flannery is the sheriff is walking in and basically saying, I know you're fucking my wife. We have no idea how he knows this. There has been no subtext to allude to the fact that his wife is having an affair with Sean Patrick Flannery. But it just happens, and we just have to accept that. And then the next time he goes back, he just walks in. And Patrick Flannery is sitting there drinking. There are two prostitutes sitting on the couch next to him. And there are just a like a mountain of assault rifles sitting on a table in front of him. And we just have to accept that this is who this character is. Again, there is no reason that we would think that he would be one of these characters or anything. They've never built this character up. There's no development. But it is the most hilarious, like second introduction of a character. Just seeing that mountain of guns, like it's like a mountain of cocaine for Scarface or something, it, it was absolutely ridiculous.
2: Since we're in full blown like spoiler territory, I think that's like the tip of the iceberg of like this whole weird Dallas melodrama because it's like through there, that scene that we learned that like the sheriff. Really shouldn't even legally be allowed to be a sheriff since he was previously fired from the force for taking the fall for like some drug and smuggler deal gone bad before they moved to this small town. It's like, again, not, where, where's the werewolves in all of this? Where's Colt and his like ninja guide and the werewolves? We don't know because this is what's happening.
1: Colt is too busy wrapping his mind around the steel horses, is what he's doing. I. Can we talk about the time aspect of this? Again, this is an 1800s cowboy coming into modern day. And they play up the fact that he has no idea what modern time is so much. Like, there's a whole (laughs) car ride sequence where he's just looking at the woman who finds him. And mind you, he's found in a coffin that has washed up on the shore. And a woman just takes him home. He just kind of pops out of the coffin. And I'm like, oh, she's going to take him to the authorities or something. That's, That's the rational thing to do. They cut away to a scene. They cut back, and this woman just has him in her bed. And I'm like, oh, okay. We're just gonna jump right into that subplot.
0: Donato, you've never tried to date in a small town. You don't have a lot of options. If you find some guy in a coffin or some woman in a coffin, like you know, you 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 sh- you owe it to yourself at least to buy them breakfast. All
1: right, okay. So that's fair then. You know, the big we don't do that being big city slickers on the East Coast over here. But you can do whatever you want in your small town, Alaska, monagle
2: well, if you're in Texas, you also decide to give them your ex-husband's guns. Right. After that. Yeah.
1: And his clothes, which hilariously look exactly like the clothes he was wearing in the first scene. It, he's wearing like a whole black ca- cowboy outfit get up. And then he wakes up and he's like, oh, I am gonna need clothes. And the girl's like, oh, or sorry, the woman is like, oh, you can have my white uh, husband's old clothes. And he puts it on and he's wearing the same costume. And I'm like, what are the chances that both of these guys are the same fit and they have the same weird outlaw slayer outfit?
2: And again, where are the werewolves?
1: Right. Sorry, that's right. This is a werewolf movie in here somewhere. (laughs) It's a werewolf movie. We do get... Okay, so I will give it credit because one of the first things that happen after we discover that the werewolves are free as well is these werewolves go attack a biker gang. And the biker gang is kind of just hanging out being unruly bikers and These weird-ass old-school bandits come walking up to him. And again, they do the whole, like, oh, what is this magical thing in front of me that is metal? They're trying to figure out what a motorcycle is. And then the werewolf just rips the guy's heart out, and they start eating everybody. So at that point, it's still early enough in the movie where you think, okay, these werewolves are going to be on the prowl. They're going to be tearing this little town apart because they think it's still the Old West and their old property and whatnot and stuff like that. So you have this glimmer of hope that the werewolves are going to be so active during this movie. And then it just goes away. It just flies away like dust in the wind.
2: Which is probably for the better because the sheriff cannot be bothered to, you know, solve this string of murders in his town because he's got wife and mayor problems to solve.
0: Well, let me ask the two of you about, um, you know, the, because we do, you're right. Like the werewolves show up and they're all kind of by modern times. And then they're like bikers again, it's the Terminator thing. They're like, we are now werewolf bikers. Now werewolf, cowboy bikers, whatever it's an aesthetic. Um, but you know, we do see them a little bit in the beginning and we do see them a little bit in the middle and there's that big finale quote unquote, which we'll talk about. <laughs> but what do you, what did you guys think of the actual, like the the um, the action sequences in this because they're trying at least to make this look and feel like a modern action film.
1: This is where I'm a little conflicted because I'm not going to tell you I wasn't a little bit entertained because I was. I was entertained when the action hits a high. I didn't mind that it was kind of goofier indie action, but at least it was done well in certain respects. I, I mean, you know, The Slayer has how many weapons that he pulls out of nowhere. In that first sequence, he has a crossbow, he has guns, then he has these two handheld battle axes. And then after all that, he's got the stake that we mentioned before. And all of them are used. They're not just doing basic, generic, hand-to-hand combat. They're actually trying to be a little interesting, like you said, the Van Helsing atmosphere, where you have this werewolf hunter who has been doing this for so long, and he has all these weapons that he's Collected and whatnot. So that did work for me a little bit in that aspect. And I do think Chad Michael Collins, like you said, he's an action guy and it comes out in spurts when he's allowed to. And you're also playing against somebody else. So you have to be on their level. And the actors that he was with, I'm sure, did not have the same stunt capabilities. So it was him doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But again, it wasn't that bad. And I mean, we'll get to the gore and stuff later, I think. But just on an action level, when it's there on an from an indie perspective i know this isn't a big budget thing but again we're talking about certified forgotten movies here it's better act acting in the action sequences than you're going to find in half the low budget action films we watch
2: yeah i i agree with that i think where it's diminished though is like the rules of this world are very very muddied and nonsensical that kind of like contradicts what action there is and the choreography that there is there like yeah he's got all these weapons and stuff but it takes to like an hour into the movie to kind of explain the the mythos and and the rules of these particular werewolves and even then it's like contradicting that at every turn they can turn whenever they want to but the, the full moon supercharges them but then the next scene they're supercharged in the day and and then, you know, he's calling for steel and iron in the beginning when he crawls out of his his coffin. Why does he need that? And, you know, it's, I think, yeah, the action's there and the weapons are there. And, like, that's not poorly done. But then you're too busy being confused as to what the heck the, the rules are of this.
1: And that, I, again, I will not argue with that. I was just going on the action itself. But, yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it does take about three quarters of the way into the film for it to actually explain what the hell these werewolves do and why, why they're able to attack during the day or attack at night. And you know, what, why were there silver bullets when Colt wakes up in that woman's bed? Not only did she give him a weapon, not only did she give him clothes, she also has silver bullets and is literally like, Oh, you're going to go hunt a werewolf. Well, no, the question is, why did you have them? Were you going to go hunt a werewolf?
2: (laughs) We don't know. We don't know.
1: We don't know. I like to think that she was going to, just in case one day she thought like werewolves were real or something. And she was like a survival expert and she was just holding those bullets. But this is, it's a coincidental movie every step of the way. The plot only services what each scene does. It doesn't want to tie them all together, but it does want to have fun in a way like little details as the prison being an old bank vault. And just giving it a little like aesthetic touch that might have been glanced over in another film, where it's just some backlot or like rented town prison cell that kind of looks like pretty generic. So it it does try that kind of stuff. But again, yeah, there are no rules. There are no anything in this. You know, Colt gives his whole backstory about how he was a Union uh, Civil War soldier and how he stumbles into becoming a werewolf slayer. And he just wants to be released of his job and he can't be. And then there's the mystical, the keeper is his magic samurai who teaches him the ways. And there's a hilarious shirtless scene where he is shirtless training to be a werewolf hunter because he is sexy. (laughs) And that is what sexy werewolf hunters do.
2: And how does one turn into a howler? Because it seems like they emphasized the bite, but then people were getting clawed and turning. And
1: yeah, I don't. It was Bites, right? Oh, I mean, I know Bites is what turned people because are you thinking of the Rookie Cop?
2: I'm thinking of the last particular one.
1: Right, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, the last, yeah. The ending is- The
0: big yeah, reveal, yeah, Matthew. Know. How could you forget <laughs> about the big reveal?
1: Because they reveal it and she just runs into the woods and it's over. <laughs> the big reveal is <laughs> the big reveal happening and running away from the movie and the movie just ending and you going, are they trying to set up a sequel here?
2: No, they flat out are because if you watch through the credits, they literally say "cult will return in High Moon. So I don't know. I'm guessing because, yeah, so this this was all one big plot set up for I don't know how many sequels. I don't know if this was conceived as a trilogy or what, but what we got is not a complete story for a reason.
1: So filmmaker Josh Ridgway really wanted to wolf cop the hell out of this. He, He really was hoping he had a wolf cop on his hands.
2: But the thing is the, with Wolf Cop is that it's intentionally like winking at its audience. Like high noon is very earnest and sincere in most of, of it. Sean Patrick, Patrick Flannery is probably the exception, but I feel like everybody else was really like giving it their all. So it kind of adds this weird, like cheese because it's not intentional camp. I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you
1: think? Yeah. Well, that goes back to the soap opera stuff before. And Matt, I'll let you just jump in, but I, I agree with you because that's the whole Dallas comparison. It's a cheesy soap opera that with some horror elements that I kind of think, but Matt, go ahead.
0: Well, I think that's actually, if, if I'm kind of tallying points in the the favor of high moon or howlers, and we need to talk about the names in a second, but um, I actually, I kind of like the fact that, that it was at least trying to do this somewhat straight because I feel like I, I watch a lot of films that, that have this budget that have this cast or a variation of this cast and kind of the way they get around that right, is they're like, well, you know, we're not going to be able to realize our vision because we don't have enough money or we don't have the talent. So fuck it. We're going to treat we're not going to take any of this seriously. And we're going to wink to the audience as much as we can. And we're going to be like we're going to have that separation, that little layer of separation where they're like, if it's good, it's because we meant it to be good. If it's bad, it's because we meant it to be bad. And for, for better or for worse, I think Ridgeway and in this film spend the entire movie being like this is this is the best we could do like from start to finish like maybe maybe somebody else could have done better but they might have had more money like this is this is the most earnest version of this cowboy ninja werewolf movie we could have hoped to make
1: yeah and i will second that in a varying degree and just kind of say the plotting is ridiculous the the breakup or sorry not the breakup but like the cheating subplot with the sheriff unnecessary everything is pretty wonky in that sense but the actors do sell it and i will go back to that and just say the movies that we're going to watch on this podcast and that you know we will continue to watch and whatnot are going to be way on a lower quality level i think in the future than this one and i'm like preparing myself for that because as kind of one note and as kind of melodramatic as they are I didn't hate a lot of the characters. I thought they were all kind of just fine doing their jobs. Like you have the crazy kooky cowboy doctor with the big white beard and stuff like that. Like everyone is a Wild West, uh, Wild West cliche. And I mean, that's what they set out to do. That's what they sent out to mimic. And, you know, Matthew Tompkins as Sheriff Ethan Hardy, the sheriff that we keep mentioning, for as ridiculous as his character's arc is, he delivers a pretty solid leading performance and he's asked to do some things that distract from the werewolves. And we start thinking, you know, where are the werewolves and where are all these things, but he still has the gravitas to lead the film and keep it moving towards those other plots. So I, I you know, I do agree. It's it's not the best. And I think that it's, this is the bane of some of these indie movies, but in the same respect, I do give this one a lot more credit than other indie films in the sense that they did uh, put a cast together that you can watch pretty consistently for the whole film and not start picking out like, Oh, well they're the weak link. They're the weak link. They're the weak link.
2: Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, I appreciate the earnestness. I think though it's one of those things where. If you're going to have this crazy, insane mishmash of genre, It almost seems like the writer was throwing in all of his inspirations, you know, like here's, here's a little bit Buffy, the vampire slayer here's a little bit Terminator, here's some werewolves, and here's a Western. And if you're going to go that crazy with all of that, I mean, you either, I feel like this movie could have benefited from streamlining the story with the earnestness and the sincerity of the performances, or it could have like upped the intentional, like not even full blown camp, but just a little bit more lighthearted, you know, like one of the town folk literally, when they're in the shootout in the garage or wherever they were, he's like, keep your ass clenched. And you know, that type of dialogue, if we can get a little bit more of that, I think it would have gone a long way in a, in a movie that's like all over the board with its, its um, inspirations.
1: And that brings me back to Sean Patrick Flannery, because all of his lines are pretty much that the one I wrote down immediately. is like, one of the first things you hear him say is he's shooting downrange uh, with a revolver, just kind of testing it out like a, a big hand cannon there. And his comment is, kicks like an ex-wife and I was like that that is who this character is going to be this entire time okay that's cool and that kind of kind of dialogue I agree we needed more of that and in my mind you take out that subplot about the sheriff and his wife and the cheating and the fact that they're never going to be okay because what happens in the end with that absolutely nothing he comes he uh the sheriff confronts Sean Patrick Flannery's mayor twice about the incident And both times it just ends with him saying, but in the other hand, we have to deal with these werewolves. So forget about what everything I just said. I'm not angry anymore. We just got to save ourselves. So that didn't even play into the actual like stakes of the final culmination of the battles. It literally was just there to kind of tide over a few scenes, introduce a daughter character that again, has no bearing on the actual outcome of the film and just kind of keep us with that filler material where you could have cut that out you could have just had it been a tense partner relationship between the sheriff and the mayor, because the mayor's a goddamn drunk who's running the town to the ground and stealing guns. It, it, I didn't need that whole uh, divorce arc or not even again, not divorce arc, but soon to be divorce arc.
0: Yeah. And I think it's actually even worse than you suggest too, because the one thing that really like the walking out of this movie and all the ridiculousness that's in it, the thing that I walked away being like, what the hell was really for this sheriff character for everything that you say, they they like poochie him. They poochie died on his way back to his home planet at him because there's literally after they do make this whole big noise about like, oh, he's been wounded. He needs the scepter or else he's going to turn. And, you know, the main character goes running off and he's like, oh, I'll get him. Don't worry about it. Like the the epilogue for this movie or kind of like the interstitial before they get to driving off into the sunset is them being like, oh, and the sheriff died, um you know, on, on scene. He didn't make it and like his family's, his, you know, we can't find his family. Which is just, it's the weirdest for as much real estate as this film devotes to the Dallas arc and to try and ground it in some sort of relationship drama. Like literally the big culmination of all of those storylines and all of those characters is like a a news reporter on television going, he's dead. We don't know where they are.
1: And then he follows that by saying, Sean Patrick Flannery's Bob Barlow, the mayor, is totally fine. So you, you Pucci, the main character who, like you just said, we've invested so much time in and so much emotionality. And then the mayor, who we're supposed to hate, who is basically screwing everyone over, he just has a few wounds. And, and like you just said, it's a news reporter saying, oh, and Mayor Bob Barlow is found with minimal injuries, and he's just talking about werewolves. And it's like, wait, what the fuck? Why is he alive?
2: I kind of wonder if that's supposed to be an ongoing story in the intended like sequels but maybe not because like you were saying the ending We're he's supposed to be our kind of lead i mean i guess colt theoretically is but we spend so much time with the sheriff and in the end ultimately he's revealed to be a bad guy too because whatever the sheriff was or the mayor was doing they were in cahoots in dallas before they moved to this small town together Yeah, they like fled a bad situation. I mean, drugs and gun smuggling and all this stuff. So it's not like the sheriff was a good guy. So it's like pulling the rug out from the audience. By the way, he he seemed like, you know, the heartbeat of this this Dallas story. But, you know, he's kind of just as shitty as the mayor. And we're going to give you this weird epilogue that kind of is not definitive because we're not showing you the dead body. I mean, when when you last left off, it seemed like he could have been saved. So I don't know. It's like Colt will return in high noon or whatever the sequel will be. But maybe so will this ongoing Dallas story, because I don't know why else you would dedicate such like so much of this movie to them if it's not meant to be like, you know, the three of them in this ongoing trilogy or something.
1: Yeah. And that's a good point to make, because during the end credits, again, it's Colt coming back in high moon. But like you just said, we don't spend the most amount of time with Colt. We spend the most amount of time with the sheriff and with his whole Dallas arc. So, exactly. You have a character that you want to make the Van Helsing character. He is your main character. You're alluding to the fact that he is, but you don't give him the time of day. You give him the Terminator arc and you use him for comical relief when he wants to call or he wants to say, I'm going to ride the middle horse or some shit like that. I don't know. Whatever his latest ambivalent comment on society is. Uh, and yeah, it, it it does make for an awkward watch at the end because we know who the main character is and we just sit there going, okay, so what's with all like the slamming on the table and yelling at your wife stuff?
0: Well, clearly you're you're not giving Colt his, his due because there are, by my count, at least two scenes where they flash back to him and his dearly departed wife um, fighting off werewolves before him going off to fight in the Civil War. So... I mean, if that's not character development, I don't know what is.
1: You know it's character development? Him holding that big old lock of hair and just rubbing it angrily in memory of his wife. It's just so weird. It's a lot of hair to be carrying around.
2: My favorite, though, that we haven't really touched upon, like the gore, but there's one scene in particular, was it maybe halfway through, where it's like they come upon the aftermath of like werewolf carnage. They find one crazy townie who is unfazed by it, and one guy who survived the carnage. And the, they pretty much relayed to the cops that they taught the werewolves how to ride motorcycles before getting slaughtered, is what I got out of that. Is that what you guys got out of kind that? Kind of, yeah, yes. because
1: they did not know how the steel horses worked and how Caroline worked.
0: No, they there is 100%. like They 100% were like, we're going to kill you, but before we do... So do I – well, do I turn the clutch or do I put my foot – like where, does, where, do, where do those – Where do? what pedals and where do I turn? Where's the blinker? How do I get the radio on? Well,
1: let's be honest. I mean if your option is being torn to shreds by werewolves and just teaching them how to ride motorcycles, I'm going to err on the side of teach them how to ride motorcycles and hopefully survive.
2: You had that No, that didn't happen.
1: No, it didn't. Except for that one guy. Maybe it was just that one guy who taught them all. He did like a little – lesson after everyone was dead and he's like all right you don't kill me i'll let you ride these motorcycles and you guys can go be a werewolf motorcycle gang
2: well by the end of it they were super pro at those motorcycles so success if that was his plan
1: yeah they were really good at revving those engines just sitting outside of houses revving the engines and howling which is a great sequence like again this movie has so many fun sequences and if you describe it to someone it sounds like a great b movie it just needed so much more of those sequences
0: Yes. Well, let me ask a question because I was trying to figure this out the whole time I watched it. What percentage of the town is dead? Because we are introduced like this town seems to have maybe thirty people in it, and we watch about twenty of them die. So is this is this town just gone now, pretty much? Well, I don't, the
1: town isn't dead because you get the okay. So when the movie opens, a poor bystander is walking by the coffins. And he dies because the werewolves break out into modern day and he happens to be there and they're hungry. You know, you've been asleep for how long? Pretty much cryogenically frozen as or the dead werewolf equivalent of that. So yeah, so one guy dies there, but then they go right to the bikers and it's not like the bikers are townsfolk and that's who they murdered and, you know, that's who we were just talking about too. Okay, so that's a bunch of dead bikers. But then after that, they're just killing the law, law enforcement. You know, they kill the two deputies, uh, they kill what, a few other, like, bodyguards and henchmen, they turn a female deputy and two prostitutes into werewolves. So I, I think the town's pretty okay. I'm
2: gonna guess by the, like, Terminator bar scene, when a Colt walks in and buys his first whiskey with whatever ice is, uh, there was a lot of people that tried to take him on. You know, just, it, this, the bar was pretty hopping for, like, middle of the day, small town Texas, so... Based on that, I'm going to say that it was a pretty good population that just knew to stay home and shut their doors.
0: Yeah, I, I did appreciate that That when you're, you know, you go to a bar and you're like, you see somebody about to throw down and you're like, circle up, guys, it's time to ninja fight.
2: <laughs> yep. And then One by the, one, too.
1: Yeah, and there's the one drunk guy who's in the back who gets like hit by one of the other people and he doesn't join the fight. He's just like, all right. And that was it. And it just cuts the next person. You're like, Wait, what the fuck?
2: I also love how these town folk are super into just showing up to be like deputies for the day. Like there's no rules or training whatsoever. Like they picked up the, the old guy Walter at um, the leftover Wall. aftermath and he just tagged along with the cops, like for the rest of the movie, pretty much, you know, like, yeah, I'm ready to go hunt some biker werewolves. No problem.
1: I mean, what else is he doing that day? You know, what, he's got to to the farm, go check the cattle. No, nah, he's going to hunt some werewolves, man.
2: I mean, some cops would be like, no, you're not qualified. You you stay out of it. No, nope, no. Nope, come on. Come on. More the merrier.
1: <laughs> the old mob mentality rule. And that, that's that's a good way to go about werewolf hunting.
0: I do. I do want to, you know, Matt, you were talking about sort of like the bigger ideas. I, I want to give this movie credit because it does have one thing that was really interesting that I that I almost was like, if if you'd spent more time with this, this could have made this a, a good film. Um, and that was the exchange between Colt and the the werewolf leader, which is basically like they've been dead for a hundred years. They died, um, and then they were resurrected by this bolt of lightning in the storm. And he asked the question. He's like, where were you when you were dead? Like, I, cause you know, Uh, were you, were you in a good place? Like, you know, where did you end up? And I was like, oh, this is like, this is the most interesting part of your movie. This is the best idea on the page. Why aren't you diving more into, into this? Cause for like five seconds in the movie, there's this idea that like the werewolf leader is like, I can't die again because I know where I go. And Colt's like, I don't care if I die because I went somewhere well. And then like, it's just gone.
2: Yes. That's like in the last Few minutes really. It gets like existential for a hot second and then they go back to battle axing.
1: Yeah, isn't it? It's that whole afterlife thing because that's tying back to Colt's birthing of becoming the Slayer and when he talks to the Keeper. And doesn't the Keeper uh, themselves, this samurai or ninja, whoever they are, which is a Chinese talking?
2: warlord? He's a Sorry, Chinese right. warlord from Sh- the Ling Sh- Dynasty.
0: Yes, that is canon
1: in the film. That is part of
0: the explanation. <laughs> But yes, the reason we know that is because Colt says he is a Chinese warlord from the Ming dynasty, I think three times. Yes. Yeah, he
1: likes he's a name dropper. He likes a name drop. I mean, what else is he going to do? But again, though, it is the afterlife that we're talking about here. And it is this heaven and hell, I would assume that that's what I'm getting from it. Again, um, just based on the fact that the keeper comes from the afterlife. And if the evil werewolf guy went somewhere bad and Colts went somewhere good. I don't think that there was much subtext to read into there. I think it was heaven and hell. I'm pretty sure.
2: He kept calling it the after world.
0: Right. But again, world.
2: I think that this this whole thing, like the mythology of it is expanded on in intended sequels. Like, I think that we're intentionally just being given like an introductory tease for like an overarching storyline that we probably won't get.
1: I was just going to say, save those problems for the mainstream movies. Like, let Alita Battle Angel fuck that shit up. Like, indie movies should just go right for the gut. I mean, they, sh- they got to yeah. kill kill shot it. Because, if I mean, again, if a mainstream film, when you get into this franchise building mentality, if they can't even pull that off right, like, an indie movie that barely gets made on its own, you can't depend that there's going to be another, even if you fund it yourself, there's going to be another sequel.
0: Right. Well, let me ask you guys. Then, you know, let's say that the popularity of this podcast episode—it's shared on social media by everybody from, you know, Kim Kardashian on down. Suddenly, High Moon or Howlers is one of the most successful movies of the year. What would you like to see in a sequel? I, I, I just—I inserted all that before stuff because I want to see us be big. But like, the real question is, what would you want to see in a sequel?
1: Hmm. I, I mean, just more cult. Honestly, I would want more cult and more cult. Comedy in the Terminator style, because as dumb as those jokes were, I I think he kind of had fun with like playing the dumbfounded uh, fish out of water character. I was okay with those. So shovel more werewolves in there. Definitely don't have it just be that one biker gang. Do like a whole Mad Max biker gang werewolf kind of thing. And then, yeah, I'd be okay with that.
2: Obviously more cult and keeper like slayer keeper scepter stuff um i kind of wouldn't mind if it was like this lucy versus cult romeo juliet star-crossed you know they're they're doomed to be enemies but they started out like as allies let give me some some more interesting stuff with that and werewolves and and this crazy mythology you only teased
0: right and in, keep, in keeping with not remembering anything Dracula, when you said Lucy, I thought you meant Charlie Brown. I was like, that's an interesting reference. Oh, no, please, no, no.
1: Contextually, so everyone knows, Lucy is the woman who picks up Colt out of the grave. So, yeah. And I guess just to jump right into that, at the end of the movie, Lucy and Colt drive up to the spot where Colt will defeat the werewolf leader. And he tells Lucy to stay behind. They're fighting the whole time. We don't see where Lucy is or anything. And there's this moment where the werewolf leader gets stabbed by Colt. And he's like, you can't kill me with anything but the scepter. I'm the last one. Or I'm not. What is it? I'm not the last one. Or I am the last one. Oh. I am the right. last one. He's the last I am guy. the last one. So you have to kill me with the scepter. And you don't have it. And then Lucy comes out of nowhere. Stabs him with the scepter. But plot twist. She's also a werewolf. So number one, he could have died anyway. And number two, she has now turned into a werewolf for some reason. And I shit you not, she immediately runs away from the screen and just runs away. It's not confronted. It's not anything. She says her one line and then just sprints. And it's like, okay, I guess that's one way to end this movie.
2: She, she says, I'm like, I'm not the last one. Did she say she's not or just there isn't? one more. I don't she says, no, she, says
1: she says you're not the last one saying like bitch I'm a werewolf. Okay. You're going to die anyway. Yeah. Fuck you. I'm out. And she just runs. Like the most hilarious yeah. sprint, too. Like just into a bush. She just sprints behind a bush and she's gone.
2: Like she's embracing her howlerness, I guess. She but is. again, like so much of this movie just feels like one big setup for a sequel. That- so it's it makes it super hard to to judge it on its own terms.
1: Yeah, because, again, going by Wolf Cop, and I I bring it up again just because it's another indie werewolf movie that, again, it tries to do the same thing where it wanted to be a franchise, but Wolf Cop goes balls out in its first film. It gives you everything that Wolf Cop could be right up front to then say, hey, if you want another one of these, that's even crazier. So we've already brought the crazy. If you want to up this another level, then you can have another one. But you still have to deliver that first film. You have to deliver that wolf cop that you're selling. And in this case, it's High Moon. You're telling us it's a uh, werewolf western film. And then you give us the alluded to Dallas melodrama for 70% of the film. And like, that's not even a joke. It's like 70% of the movie is just this. I I, I don't want to say boring, but a little tedious melodrama. It's-
0: so kind of the conceit of of the show then is that we're we're going through a war on earth and some of the stuff that we lost. so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask both of you point blank is this something that should remain forgotten or is this something people should go see?
2: I I would to say for remain forgotten personally just because I don't foresee this having a sequel. I could be wrong. If it is, then maybe I change my answer but you know on its own, being kind of obscure, without much buzz it's a low indie fare like i don't expect that it would ever get a sequel to to kind of close it out so it's just a whole bunch of confusing open-ended questions so for me i'm saying forgotten
1: i i was battling with this before because i knew you were going to ask it and i really did want to give it the old college try go watch it on your own and you know see how it goes for you but the more we did talk about it the more i do agree that this is a bit of a mess of ideas of something that could be way cooler and just doesn't get there. And like you just said, Megan, if there is another one of these, if we get a High Moon 2 and they want to go full force into the werewolf bounty hunter aspect, great. Then you should start with High Moon so you understand what the hell is going on and at least get a little background and then jump into High Moon 2. But as it exists, it's a pretty fun concept that's not executed on the same level of fun that you're expecting. And we didn't even touch on the, you know, prosthetics and stuff like that. The face makeup of the werewolves that, you know, I've seen worse. I've seen better. So it's one of those things that you don't even kind of make a mark in that sense. You don't have that crazy transformation. Again, one last time I'll bring up Wolf Cop. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. You actually get a full werewolf uh, transformation in an indie werewolf movie and it looks good. Whereas this one does the cheapo kind of humans start flailing around, they're making primal noises, and then all of a sudden the camera cuts away and cuts back, and they're werewolves again. It's fine. We're gonna watch worse movies on this podcast, but it's just barely on that level where I can't give it the nudge and say go for it. So unfortunately, I will say it has to remain forgotten.
0: Yeah, I'm nowhere near as conflicted as you. Um, <laughs> I just say forget this one outright. And that's not a knock on the movie because I do think that it's kind of doing, um, you know, it, it is absolutely doing the best that it can. And I give it bonus points for doing it earnestly. But, you know, I'm trying to think, like, if you're in the mood for sort of this ultra low budget man versus monsters type story, like, it's it's not in the same league as something like Stakeland, um, which does the world building and the ac- action sequences better than this. And if the premise hooks you, if you're like, oh, cool, like an out of time, out of place cowboy fighting monsters, like penny dreadful there are multiple seasons of penny dreadful right there and the lead who is a werewolf is like literally he's he is literally a gunslinger from the west so it i will say that until you watch every single episode of penny dreadful i do not allow you to watch this movie and then after that
1: also go watch late phases another great indie werewolf movie yes i'm just throwing it out there you should do that
0: I'm trying
2: to think, I mean, almost any, when you, when you watch like a werewolf movie, like what do you want? You either want like carnage, like dog soldiers, or you want some kind of monsters metaphor story, you know, like Wolfman or Ginger Snaps, and you don't really get either here.
0: I just recently watched Wolfman. So the whole idea of like monsters metaphor is like perfect. That movie is great. And, and, you know, that's, that's the way, you know, that's the way you should do. They had something to say. They had a werewolf story. Like, does it work a hundred percent? I don't know. Do I love it very much?
2: It's the underrated werewolf uh, third entry in the 81 trilogy of werewolf movies, being Howling, American Werewolf in London, and Wolfen. All three came out in 81.
1: I know. I'm racking right now. Like, what indie werewolf movies are kind of, you know, do the thing right? And, you know, again, the two I come up with are Wait Phases and Wolf Cop. And they sell the werewolf design, they sell the howls, and they sell everything that you're kind of looking for. So, anything that doesn't really meet those standards it's just not there for me
0: i can do we need Hmm? go ahead
2: i was just gonna say i can forgive like i mean wolf cop the first there's some pretty sketchy like moments where he his design looks really rough but it's okay because there's so much going for for the movie and it really like the whole transformation is bolstering his character arc so it's okay but if you don't really have much else going for you plot-wise, you need something like a little bit more wow factor.
0: So is our big takeaway from this that this is not the wolf, the werewolf movie for you, but we do need more werewolf movies? Oh, always.
2: always. 100%
1: always. Especially Western werewolf movies. Like th- This is a great hybrid subgenre. I would watch one of these a week.
0: I would have watched this whole movie, actually. To To, to your point, I think that if this whole movie had taken place in the 1800s, I think I would have enjoyed that a lot more. Yeah, I
1: agreed.
2: Can you imagine, like, a, a bone tomahawk, but with werewolves?
1: Now I can. Like,
2: yeah, like, I, I want this. Give me something with the grit and, like, the harshness of, of what it was to live in the Wild West in those days. And then somebody coping with, you know, lycanthropy. I mean... The- I want I want more
1: werewolves. Yeah, more, definitely more werewolves. And like you just said, I would have loved if it stayed in the 1800s for the Wild West port. Because... The first thing that happens in this movie is a duel outside on, like, a regular Wild West Street between Colt and the werewolves. And he's like, hey, did you get my message? And the lead werewolf just chucks a decapitated head at him. And he's like, yeah, he was my best man. Or, like, crap like that. Like, yeah, I want that werewolf movie that is just people sending each other severed heads as messages. Like, please.
0: Well, I think that, unfortunately, we've rendered our verdict on High Moon slash Howlers. I don't—did they change— I think it is High Moon officially.
1: Howlers is still on Rotten Tomatoes. They just never got around to updating it. Shocker, because there's no reviews on it, but—
0: Okay. It says Howlers on IMDb, too, so I don't know. Whatever the name of this movie is, I think uh, that—I think we've rendered our final verdict on it. Um, I would have preferred Howlers, I think, actually, while I'm thinking about it. I don't think it'll matter at this point, Matt. No. Um, Megan, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, for those that have have listened and may not be familiar with your work, where can they find you? Like what kind of stuff do you do? We know because we follow you, but like, what's the best place to get the Megan Navarro experience?
2: I write a crap ton for Bloody Disgusting. So primarily that's where you can find my stuff. Um, at least five articles a week, um, on Bloody Disgusting, but I've also written for birth movies, death, um, Vulture and the upcoming July issue, Fangoria. Yay.
0: that's very exciting i am excited uh matt if people want to follow you and learn about demon Wind, how do they do that if you would like extensive
1: demon wind tweets you can follow me at donato bomb and also on instagram and letterbox if you would like to follow my writing you can find me at such places as adam insider slash film flickering myth bloody disgusting dread central yada 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 just follow my social media i post a lot i whore myself out that'll be the easiest way
0: That's a wonderful way to put it. Um as for myself, I'm very discriminate in who I write for, but you can follow me on Twitter as well. It's labsplice, L A B S P L I C E. And yeah, I think Twitter is actually a pretty good place to follow any of us. Um we're all pretty prolific and you can see our stuff, so that's the best way to do it. I want to say any last thoughts before I go into the the end wrap up any any final words? I wish I liked High Moon better. <laughs> Same. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get a chance. The next time we bring you back, Megan, it will be for a better werewolf movie. I swear that right now.
2: Yes. All right. I'm holding you to it.
0: Excellent. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Megan for joining us on this episode. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks.
2: Thank you. Bye.